you to everybody for tuning in to the quarterly update for the ICM Crescendo Music Royalty Fund. My name is Mike Baker, and we're joined today by Lead Portfolio Manager, Dave Vanka. So as a lot of you know, I like to start um, the first couple minutes of these update calls just giving a quick high-level overview of the strategy itself for those that might be a little bit newer to the mandate or a little bit newer to the fund. So the essence of our music royalty fund is that we're looking to deliver an alternative income stream to our investors based off of the cash flows produced from music catalogs that we're acquiring. So the simplest way to explain this is anytime a title or a song is played on any streaming service, so this could be Apple Music, Spotify, TikTok, Peloton, there seems to be new ones coming to the market uh, all the time. Um, or anytime that it's played within a movie, a TV show, or even on the radio, a royalty right is created and paid to its owner. So we've seen a ton of the largest institutional players, um, you know, Blackstone, KKR, Ontario Teachers, Apollo, and, and many more come to this space. Um, and, and they're allocating billions of dollars. And, and there's a couple reasons why I think that that might be the case and why it's such a compelling asset class. To begin, um, the space is booming. That The music industry as a whole is, is in a bull market right now. And it's almost exclusively driven from this huge rise in music streaming. Um, the second reason is that there's very little CapEx costs, meaning that you essentially have this notion of your top line revenue being generated, equating to the cash flow available to investors. Thirdly, there's, there's very little, if not negative, correlation to broader financial markets, so income stability. Um, and then finally, these are very long-lasting uh, cash flows. So once you own these cash flow titles, um, the royalty right is paid to the owners for the life of the individual artist plus 70 years. So in essence, we're talking about a perpetuity income stream here. So with that, I would like to bring in Dave. And Dave, before we jump into some of our activities over the last quarter here, maybe do you want to just give everyone a little bit of a high-level overview on how you see the space, where we're sitting, and, and potentially where things are moving in the future? Sure. Thanks, Mike. And I, th I think you hit a lot of the highlights as to, as to why we're seeing this interest in this asset class by the world's largest private equity and, and private credit investors out there. And I think a lot of it is really consistent with what our thesis. So so from where we are, we're really proud of where we've come with this fund. Uh, we started it about a year ago and we've continued to grow this fund and been demonstrated that we can uh, successfully acquire these assets and integrate them into the portfolio and sort of continue to build that out. and and. The thesis originally that we had was that streaming is going to continue to grow and continue to drive as consumer behavior starts to change. And that has uh, persisted and looks like it's going to persist for some time in the future, obviously, as well. And the fact that there's material diversification benefits of this asset just relative to stocks, bonds, private credit, real estate, other asset classes, is is a really large driver of why we're seeing you know Blackstone and KKR and and the like enter into the space in in the size that, that that they are. So so the dynamic has been uh, consistent with what our expectation has been, 
and and now it's attracting uh, material capital sources. You know, and the other thing that we've seen in the industry is, you know, a number of these legacy artists, the larger iconic classic rock artists uh, have been looking for ways to both simplify their estates, take advantage of, of some of this capital coming in and perhaps uh, exit their most material investment prior to increases in tax rates and, and the like. So so that's been driving some of the traffic in the space. And, you know, even as recently as this past week, um, you know, we, we, we hear that both Sting and, and Bruce Springsteen have been out uh, marketing their catalogs. Uh, and in both cases, those would be multiple hundred million dollars and, and higher. So so lots of activity in the space as well. And we're seeing it uh, downstream and, you know, and for our sweet spot of catalogs of 10 million and under, perhaps uh, we're starting to see more and more traffic and, and availability of really interesting opportunities there as well. So so I think that probably touches on the high level, Mike, and and um, turn it back over to you. Yeah. And, and, and so I mentioned this notion of the music industry being in a bull market. And I think that this is kind of this you know, right at this inflection point of of where things have been starting to take off, right? Because we had this, you know, the music space as a whole that went through this large transitionary period where physical ownerships of CDs and vinyls started to diminish. Um, there was challenges with uh, piracy and and music streaming has really been the, the savior of, of the music space. So maybe just talk quickly on where we are within this music streaming rise, if you will, and and where some of these uh, large forecasts are, are seeing us uh, potentially take it in the future. Yeah, the the smartphone has changed a lot as well, and we're kind of continuing to see the proliferation of smartphones, obviously, around the world. But there was a study, actually, that came out this week by, by Omdia, and it talked about the amount of revenue that streaming provided to the global copyright income. Uh, which is approximately 54% and certainly higher in the U.S. and the U.K. than that. Um, And for reference, that number would have been 22% in 2016 and 46% in 2019. And what we're seeing is uh, individually and everyone's own families, we're seeing these behavior changes where where we're consuming a lot of content through subscription services uh, and and streaming. And we're also... um, enjoying the benefits of this technology and this adoption starting to hit other parts of the world as as well. So, you know, things that that we look at industry-wide and and, and um, others would others would tend to agree is, you know, there are there are a few headwinds like everything else, you know, one one of the questions is do we at some point reach a saturation point in the US or 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 the UK and and perhaps we do. It it certainly has continued to grow. But there's a lot of the rest of the world that is really recently starting to adopt. Uh, you know, France and Germany, for example, are later adopters, and clearly China, uh, Asia in, in particular, uh, and other emerging markets, in addition to the slower developed markets, are are starting to increase the amount of of revenue they're doing. And that's why we see companies like Spotify entering, you know, another 80 or so new markets this year because they see that's where the growth's going to be going to be made up from. Um, but there's been some pretty significant tailwinds this past year too, as well. And you know, a couple of things get pointed out or or identified specifically. You know, what, one of them is clearly TikTok uh, and the growth in that platform. And it, you know, in, in prior years, as TikTok was just getting started, it was seen as a place where where um, 
someone might take something they found on Spotify and then put it on TikTok, uh, but they would have discovered the music or the content on Spotify. And now it's almost the reverse is true. A lot of the new content discoveries coming off of TikTok and and uh, then they follow up with Spotify or these other, other sources. And we even see revenue from our catalogs coming from from TikTok as well. It's a new revenue. It's a new line item, which is great. And and you know some some people were suggesting, um, you know, don't know how to verify the accuracy of it, but that Sony Music's total revenue might be up to five percent comprised of TikTok. So just a game changer from what we've seen in in the past historically. Um, yeah. Another yeah, I mean another tailwind that that, that gets identified is is the growth in the fitness industry and not just from stay at home. So, so Peloton has been a big contributor to this, but there's others and, and some research we were looking at talked about the exercise app business growing 53% to 4.4 billion in the past year. And, you know, probably a lot of exercise equipment might uh, become closed dryers in the future for some people, but they're still predicting a three and a half times growth through 2028 to, you know, 15 and a half billion. So, so any music that goes on there needs to be licensed and those fees kind of flow through the system uh, to the holders of the, of, of the rights. And, you know, the last probably unique industry trend I might talk about is this, this move towards live streaming. And it was a natural extension of the pandemic that, that artists who couldn't tour, which is a primary revenue source for a lot of them, uh, had to come up with something creative to do and live streaming has taken off pretty materially and you know the talks now is we're going to start seeing events where you'll have fans at the stadium or at the arena uh, but you'll also have five million people viewing it online and, and paying for that in, in some way shape or form so so the ability of artists to reach massive audiences at scale uh, is starting to change, and not every artist can can do that, but but the trend is is certainly certainly there in the space. So it's definitely exciting and changing time for the industry, um, and yeah, you know, we continue to see uh, strong market conditions here going forward in the future. Yeah, great. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit here and talk about some of our activities over the last quarter here, since since a lot of our investors would have heard from us. Um, so we can talk about some of the acquisitions that we did in specific, but but even more generalized to start, maybe give a view of kind of what we're looking for in terms of a, an acquisition or something that would be a reasonable acquisition. So that could be from a, you know, a genre perspective, a multiple that we're willing to pay, like kind of what would our, what would our target be? Happy to touch on it. Our, our strategy from inception has been to acquire a diversified uh, genre and artist selection of catalogs that, that, fit nicely with each other so that the portfolio itself um, has the risk reduced of owning perhaps an individual artist or an individual uh, song or genre or whatever the case may be if taste if taste change and and to to do that we've been uh, agnostic on any individual deal as to what in what the industry actually is or the genre actually is but but they all have their own sort of specific uh, uh, needs or, or, or concentrations or or mechanics of how they generate revenue. So, you know, country music, for example, has a lot more radio play, uh, you know, even terrestrial radio play than than other genres. And it's just the nature of the fact of how the audience is, is listening to it, whereas whereas hip hop would have virtually none of that or, or, or little bits of that. So, so you know, th throughout that, 
Um, we're also focused on catalogs that have matured enough so that we feel comfortable they're not going to experience significant decline. So if 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 a brand new artist or brand new hit comes out, uh, has a lot of radio play and a lot of top 40 or top chart play, it'll often tail off dramatically uh, and then have a very long tail, which has a more stable income stream. And that usually tends to grow over time as well. So so we're, we're trying to focus on artists that that have some of that history we can be opportunistic within that um, so there's no set range but we've certainly got a couple catalogs right now you know one under LOI that's that would be over 50 years old as an example and we've also looked at catalogs that are three or four years old although typically typically our sweet spots probably catalogs that are maybe five to 15 five to 20 years old and in the case of something newer than that we'll be paying much less on a multiple basis perhaps because because we want to make sure we're conservative when we sort of underwrite the the income because it's because we're not as certain with the lack of history how people are going to respond over time. So so that's kind of the, the reach of the catalogs. And and as the fund has grown, we're starting to look at slightly larger acquisitions as well. So when we initially started, you know, a few hundred thousand to, you know, a few million dollars was a good place to start. Now we're looking more at catalogs that could reach ultimately up to up to 10 million in some cases and everything in between. And it's it's um, it, it's been interesting to see the deal flow we get off the back of that as well. So um, and yeah, you know, the, re- I, I find it fascinating to see the, uh, the some of these crazy multiples that some of these are trading at too, right? I mean, some of these more A-list uh, named artists or household name artists that are that are selling their their catalogs at you know 20 30 plus x multiples on on these things is, is crazy so maybe give everyone a, a sense of kind of that range that we're comfortable paying or at underwriting at least yeah our our objective is to have a have a portfolio as a as a whole where we've paid under 10 times and and when we when we say that we're talking about the the cash flows generated you know either basically this past year, give or take, or what we expect it to be next year. And and there's there's more to it than that. I mean, what we really do is we model out how we think the cash flows are going to perform over time and then discount it. But the but the but the napkin metric everyone in the industry talks about is is just the the multiple. So so you know that that multiple on any individual catalog for us has ranged from about from five to about 13 times um, and everything in between and certainly the market on larger catalogs that are iconic that have been around a long time uh, and I think this is a function of the amount of capital that's chasing them as well which is which is different than where where we're at from a competitive standpoint is that is that um, some of these catalogs are trading at again 25 or 30 times and like I said Sting's been out saying he wants 30 times for his catalog and he may end up getting it because a Blackstone or a KKR might want to make a splash and acquire that. And when they do that, um, half the industry thinks they're crazy and the other half of, of the industry, and, and certainly these are bright financial firms, have the view that, that, that listen, these revenues are going to continue to grow over time and we're really paying, you know, 15 times revenue, you know, five, eight, 10 years out, right. not the 30 times today. So, so it's, it's a really different approach to it. And 
there's a limited amount or scarce amount of catalogs of that size or, or scale that can be enabled. So that's why I think that trend is going to continue and it certainly benefits us and, and the value of the assets we're acquiring along the way also. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about some of our activities over the last quarter. Maybe just pick a couple of our most notable catalogs that we've closed on in the last call it a uh, few months here and, and maybe just touch on um, why we like them and um, and kind of where we where we source them from because I think that's another pretty interesting thing to touch on too because these are obviously not you know traded on a TSX exchange like any uh, publicly traded equity would be. Sure, and the, and the last the last quarter that that we're reporting on was sort of the quarter starting through the summer and we we had um, the, the quarter itself was quiet in terms of the number of closes but we had uh, a half dozen deals in the pipeline that we were working on through through the quarter and they're all starting to close sort of after the end of the quarter so we've seen some announcements already and we'll see a couple more here likely before the end of, end of the year um, and you know I'll, I'll give you one example um, we acquired uh, half the masters of a uh, a violinist called Joshua Bell, and you know classical is a, is a very niche genre. It's not a genre where you know we're ever going to be large in, but it but it but it added some really nice diversification to the portfolio. And and what what it's done is as people have been like working from home or studying from home or whatever they're doing, there's been this growth in demand for playlists that that are you know, study at home, you know, background music, dinner party, work from home. And, and you know, Joshua has been uh, successful in sort of growing his brand, uh, you know, on, on Amazon and, and others through that. And, and we like sort of the stability of that and, and the way it was growing organically and the fact we could acquire it at a reasonable valuation. And, you know, he's someone who is considered top of class in what he does. Um, but if you're not paying attention to violinist, you, you might not have heard his name, but he, he's got a reasonable brand in the U.S. beyond that. And it's the sort of artist we wanted to be attached to in the space because because unlike other genres, you'll end up with a, a lot of individual songs um, versus, say, a single album or, or exposure on a few songs or, or, or a few albums. So and these songs were generally not written by the artists in the space. They were written by you know, Mozart or Tchaikovsky. So, so, um, you know, quite a significant base of, of um, songs from the actual volume of the songs there. And then just a different asset class that helped diversify our, our, our genre. And, and, and that catalog was, was helped identify through relationships, you know, in this particular interest of, of Devo Harris, who's one of our advisors in New York and relationships he had in the industry. And ultimately we built a, a strong relationship with a with a group called Park Avenue in New York, who's an A and R, uh, you know, artist management and production company that's very well regarded, and they're lending their expertise and knowledge to us from an advisory capacity as, as well now, which is which is great. So we're, we're continuing to kind of build out that network of people and opportunities, and that showing that we're credibly transacting is really helping our deal flow in our pipeline. Yeah, and then I know we had a couple that would have closed and probably bled over into this quarter, but uh, maybe just quickly touch on a few of our more recent acquisitions too. Yeah, well, that 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 was that was one of them for sure. Um, we've got another one that's going to be coming out uh, likely next week. That's going to be announced that has a mix of Latin and hip hop in it from a writer. Um, 
and hopefully by the time this goes to press, that will be announced as well. Um, so we've done we've done a few along the way here, and I think going forward into the end of the year, there's um, uh, a rock catalog that's meaningful to us that we've been working very very hard on, and expect to be be closing uh, either just before year end or or just after year end, depending on on uh, on certain factors. Uh, and there's a very iconic singer songwriter catalog that we're working on also as as well. So so that the the um the build out into next year is i think we're going to see um incremental catalogs come in some that are slightly more material than than the ones we we started the year looking at certainly and you know we have a we have a pipeline that's pushing 100 million dollars uh of actionable opportunities which we feel feel fantastic about and and obviously we're not going to do all of those but but it, it's great to see those kind of deals that we can rank deal by deal on on transactability. Yeah, and I know that some of these catalogs will pay on a monthly basis. Some will pay quarterly or semi-annually or annually. So now that we're over, you know, a year into the fund now, maybe just do a quick look back and and as a broad base statement. I know you can't speak to to every title with with hundreds of them in the portfolio now, but as a broad based portfolio, how are things progressing? Uh, relative to to what we would have underwritten a lot of these ad. I'll t- I'll touch on the first part because we get asked uh, regularly, you know, how how do you actually get paid on on these assets? It's a common question, a very very normal question to ask if you're not if you didn't grow up in in music publishing or or at a record label or or, or the like. And and what tends to happen for us is is when we acquire a catalog, we'll get revenue from a couple different sources, typically anywhere between one and and five or something, depending on the contracts. And and depending on which rights you own, you might be getting paid from uh, off the writer's share, which which comes through a, a centralized performing rights organization. So in Canada, it's called SOCAN. In the U.S., it's it's uh, BMI, ASCAP, CSAC, and the like. Those typically pay out quarterly. The major labels or major publishing companies will typically pay out twice a year, March and September. So while we're paying distributions monthly in our fund, uh, our lumpier revenue comes in March and September uh, from these larger players. And then some of our distribution partners will pay monthly, particularly if it's an independent distribution or perhaps YouTube revenue or, or, or the like. So, so, but we've got enough information now on a few of our catalogs that we acquired early um, to feel really good about the assets we've made, we've made to date. So, so in the case of, uh, you know, Taylor Swift's always, always a, a topic. Um, she's actually just debuting with a record 26 songs on the Billboard Hot 100 after her re-release of Red. But um, we acquired interests on the masters from a producer for the first uh, five Taylor Swift albums, give, give or take. And there was some, you know, industry questioning as whether or not uh, her re-recording of these songs was going to cannibalize the old songs. And in, in fact, the opposite has actually been true. So we've seen the originals spike quite materially uh, as she's dropped the re-recordings or announced new things, and, and she's been brilliantly marketing, as, as everyone knows. And as a result, that acquisition, where we were pretty conservative going into it, um, has been, you know, dramatically outperforming 
to date. So again, a year a year's worth of data, but we see real revenue coming in off the catalog and we see the real streaming numbers out there. So it, it sort of helps support our thesis. Uh, catalog like Lauren Daigle, that was one of the call it, uh, earlier dollar age catalogs we would have bought. And uh, we acquired that at what we felt was a very attractive multiple. And, and you know, the risk on a catalog like that was it was going to decline um, more appreciably than we forecast. And, and again, this, this is one where the artist has taken on an increased tra trajectory and you could, you could see it coming, but it's demonstrated by another year's worth of data and, and revenue. And she's crossing over genres beyond what was originally the Christian genre to, to pop and to some more mainstream media, such as the voice and American idol and, and, and the like. So, so, you know, I've been, been very, very happy with what we've seen come in from, from revenue to date, things like that. Um, you know, when we buy a catalog in the last few months, you don't have enough information necessarily to, to know how it's going to perform over the long term. And even the ones we're talking about, you know, this is still a newer fund. So, so time will, time will tell us more, but, but, but as of today, we've been really uh, thrilled with, with how these assets have been performing. So. Great. Okay, well, I think we will wrap it up for there for today. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to uh, to keep everybody updated, and we're looking forward to seeing the growth over the coming quarters. Yeah, and we 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 pleased to be invested alongside everybody, and and thank everyone for their support. And we're looking forward to you know continuing to to be able to offer this asset class uh, to investors because I think it's a hard one to access on your own. So we're we're uh, we're happy to be partnered with everybody, and again, thanks for your support. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Mike. Take care. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as recommendations or solicitations of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate or change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of ICM Investment Management Incorporated as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. ICM Investment Management Incorporated does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.